The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. Arsenal legend and England captain Tony Adams' struggle with alcoholism were well documented in the press and in his two books titled Addicted and Sober. The heavy drinking he turned to as a young footballer in the mid-80s came to a head in 1990 when he crashed his car into a wall while well over the drink-driving limit. He was sentenced to four months, of which he served two. Tony's long and very public recovery were crowned by trophy after trophy with Arsenal at the end of his career, before he became a coach and perhaps more importantly, set up the Sporting Chance Clinic, which provides counselling and support for sportsmen and women dealing with addiction. He's also done lots and lots of work in the prisons and with the Forward Trust, which is how the two of us first met. Our chat covered all of that, plus the childhood roots of the psychological issues Tony overcame and how that informed his approach to parenthood. When Tony does a meeting in the Nick, they know he's done time. They know about your incredible football career. And and the the connection is incredible, isn't it? I mean, the love that you get... Mm. And the respect and the, that you command from these guys is is amazing. I've never seen anything like it. But um, prison for you, when you were in the Nick, there was no recovery programs. You often are quoted as saying you learned nothing in prison. That could have been your bottom, couldn't it, Tony? It should have been your bottom, but it wasn't. Yeah, and I do go back, and I go back because there wasn't anything in place around why I was actually in there. You know, yeah. I was in there because I abused alcohol and to not have a, a counselor or anyone actually say to me you know you're in here because of that you want to talk about it mm-hmm. you know it doesn't make sense for me today but that that was the the landscape during that period and Chelmsford was a transferred prison and uh, I went there and and I kind of just locked myself in the cell and did my time you know and and come out and had another six years of hell, uh, mentally obsessed with alcohol, emotionally bankrupt, and in a, in a, in a you know a horrific nightmare, getting to the end of my drinking. So you know I, that's why I got involved in the rat and now obviously forward trust when I got clean and sober because I I, I just thought you know hallelujah I, I could have really found my bottom then instead of. And Six years uh, later. Exactly. Did you find any booze in prison? Did you get high when you were in the Nick? Well, the, the guy that did uh, was an orderly, court orderly. He went out and he could smuggle it. He, he smuggled a bottle of vodka in. And um, he said, come, come into my cell and have a swig. And I kind of went, you know, you're talking to an alcoholic, but at that time, undiagnosed, unconscious. Yeah. And I, my thought was, why the hell do I want a swig? I'll give me the bottle. Yeah, get me get me out of it. But why? Why would anybody just want, you know, like a glass of wine? Why? Why would you want to do that? I didn't see the the, the sense of it, so I didn't take it. But it was available. What you said about the nick and about the not being um, that care, and you know, now since we've worked in the prisons, you know, there's the forward trust, which is amazing, and you know, I work with the Samaritans who have listeners on every wing, mm. you know, so that when you do need to reach out, you bang on your cell door. And the, the screws go and get, uh, they have to go and get a listener. And that's supported by all the prison governors. It's an amazing thing, you know, and it's it's really helped uh, massively for in mental health in prisons. But that gap in the market, which was basically you 
crashing the motor and them, and everyone going, he's a silly boy, he's thrown it all away, he had everything in his hands. And now, you know, with your charity, which it's helped so many people, you know, because, you know, no one, everyone would just say you're a silly boy and you've thrown it all away, but there was no support for those people. Yeah, no, th- thank you. Yeah, there, there wasn't. And uh, very similar to the to the prison industry where there was no education around that and and. and and a rat at that period filled that place and uh, went into a hell of a lot of prisons doing 12-step therapy and uh, amazing, amazing work. Uh, a little light bulb went on with me in my industry, you know, and said, actually, you know, all my colleagues were asking me how I'd got clean and sober and, you know, how I'd sorted myself out. You know, I sobered up in 96 and two years into that, everyone's asking me, They've seen this one character turn into this different character, yeah, and gone, "Wow, my God, this is unbelievable! Look at him now. He's winning doubles. He's clean. He's sober. He's he's, he's peace with himself. And oh, we want some of that. How do you do it, Tone? And at that point, you know, I only had my set of experiences, and there was nothing out there for people. So, like I say, light bulb moment. I wrote Addicted, which is uh, a step four in paperback. And uh, it wasn't getting the uh, relief that I thought it should get because of uh, all my kind of dirty work was in the public eye. So I thought that I had to clean up it, clean up my past. So I had had no skeletons in the cupboards Mm -hmm. into the public domain, which was addicted. Um, Like I said, I got 250 grand for that, which was after tax about 167. I gave it to the Sporting Chance and the Sporting Chance was born. And, uh, you know, we made a lot of mistakes and it needed the money in the early days. And I put my clinical director, my own therapist in place. And we were falling forwards for a few good years. And now we're the biggest provider after 20 years now of services. We're a service provider, 24-7 helpline one-to-one through a network of counsellors through the country, education department, uh, and, and a rehab. Does that get funded by, by the Premier League? Exactly that. And that's what I found when I was trying to fundraise in the early days, and I just kind of went, another light bulb moment. You know, if I've kicked a ball at Wembley, surely the, the PFA should... You know, if I had a bad, I need a hip replacement, they'd probably pay for it. So if I've got an emotional and a you know, mental problem, why are they not... You know, give him the 55 quid one-to-one therapy. That's very true. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Because, you know, how we grade our sympathy as the public, you know, because like you said, Addicted was written because you were in the public eye. But, you know, how do you grade your, your sympathy when someone is so highly paid and admired as a sportsman and then, you know, they fall off the wagon and they they get into trouble, you know, as opposed to a crackhead in the in the streets or someone who's selling the big issue in, in, in central London? Yeah, this doesn't um, discriminate, unfortunately. You know, it's just, you know, whatever, you, you know, black, white, whatever religion, an addict's an addict. And uh, yeah. I, I think, you know, the perception... It's, it's breaking down that now, you know, and money just got me quicker drunk, to be honest with you. It took yeah. me to accelerated my illness. It's the only thing that it did for me. You know, I hit bottom a lot earlier through the finance. I, I didn't have to steal, for instance. Although, it's, it's, back in my day, when I first went into AA, there was a 20 questions. I think it's 12 questions now about are you an alcoholic or not, you know, whether inquiring. And uh, one of the things on there was about stealing. Have you ever stole for your illness, you know, for your for your disease, and I and I pretty much the first time I did them twenty six questions, really interesting. When I was in denial and unconscious, I think I did about three out of twenty. I said yes to, you know what I mean? I do wet the bed. 
head, you know, type of thing. Yes, but yeah. it's about three out of 20. And when I kind of come to, I did 19 out of 20. Really? The only one I didn't do was the stealing. But thinking back, when the barman, I went to the checkers, I drank everywhere, but I did drink my local quite a bit. And it was like a horseshoe bar. Yeah. And when the barman was around the other side of the horseshoe, this side, I leant across yeah. and filled my glass up. That wasn't stealing. That was a laugh. That was yeah. a gag. You know, that was my mentality. You know, that was just a gag. That's not stealing. That's stealing. Yeah. <laughs> You've said, you know, you knew how to play football and you knew how to get drunk, but you didn't know who you were. And that, that charity now has, has filled that hole, you know, that, that the massive lack of, you know, because I think football players get banned, don't they? They get like a, or, you know, any sportsman that, that's in trouble, that gets into trouble. Mostly, as you know, with premiership guys, it ends up usually being a car crash. Mm. And they take a two-season ban and then they go back. That, Jace, that was my first experience with all the organisations, British Olympic Association, even the PFA back in the day. You know, you know when I came to and I did the book and I started the charity, I, you know, I had six years of knocking on doors. And they said, you know, I said, if, uh, if someone bans from substance, for instance, an athlete, and they, they came back, you know, we, we'll give them a two-year ban. What are you talking about? I said, yeah, but what are you going to do for them? You know, obviously, this is the end point for them, not the beginning. There's a reason why they're doing this, you know. You know, so uh, and it's taken a long time and to actually break down these walls. And hallelujah, you know, we had the Ed's Up FA Cup, which was an amazing break. Amazing in in, in talking about mental health, and uh, you know, I take my my hat off to Prince William, who's who spearheaded the campaign. You know, it's quite easily you know, to, to criticise the, the Royals. But um, I think he's uh, he's done a, a remarkable thing. And uh, to actually, you know, not be in a gambling company or an alcohol company, to actually talk about this stuff, for me and you to be talking about mm-hmm. it, you know, openly, honestly. Yeah. You know, it's just a, a different playing field to the one that I was experienced at the beginning. And, and people do, you know, they say, oh, they've got enough money, you know, to sort it out for themselves. Or, but you don't, it's what you said about early on. It's like you're not given the tools to for your, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, especially footballers. It's all back to education then, you know, and, and the education we put in place for the, the PFA in, in 2000 started it off and for instance the, the, I always give this as a great example actually how it, it can kind of go into an organisation and, and change its mentality I started doing education for the rugby league in 2010 and year on year we do education for them and there's been a, for the adult population the mentors the leading ones not the kids the, the first team players, the people that everyone look up to. And we did it continually. And one by one, we had a few referrals to the clinic, to the one-to-one therapist. And over time, we do a survey with them now of their members, the RFL members. Okay, so we say, do you know who Sporting Chance are? Do you know to uh, access uh, Sporting Chance? And do you know, do you know what they do? And uh, 98% of their members said, yes, yes, yes. You know, it's just amazing. And now I'm delivering now to the, because we haven't done it for a few years, with the Premier League. Mm -hmm. 
and I've got we've got the contract to deliver education because it's okay doing it with the kids, the 23s and the 18s, but if they see their the ones that they want to emulate, you know, act in certain ways, behaviours, it's not only sometimes drugs or, or 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 drink or gambling, and there's an epidemic actually in football at the moment with with gambling because. He does get to alcohol does get detected. You can't play to the levels that they're playing now, physically. Yeah. You know, so they've got to look at other options to if they're not at peace with themselves, if they're not got the self esteem and the emotional sobriety to actually handle life on life's terms. Yes, they, there's other things out there that gets them off. You know, when we talk about the past, and you see, I mean, I was doing some research and. There's a player uh, called Gary Croft who who played Premier League football with a tag on his ankle, with no, you know, as a form of punishment because he was out of nick and he wore the tag. He couldn't do evening <laughs> games and has come out, you know, and talked about it publicly and said, you know, there was no counselling, there was just punishment. And Sporting Chances filled that hole, which is an amazing achievement. And like you said, I mean, look, I know that you don't care that you've got a statue of yourself outside the Emirates and it doesn't take away your fear and doubts and demons, but the Tony Adams that I met and admire, he seems in a safe and comfortable place. And yeah, no, it, it's it, a joy. It's a matter of, like, I always say, you know, like I've said in the, in the part, that was the thing that you quoted about that I knew how to get uh, drunk and I know how to play football, but I didn't know who I am. Mm. You know, I said that in my first meeting with my therapist right at the very start, you know, it was a, it was a cry for help. And yeah. I do know myself today. And the football was, you know, it was a long career that I had, but I'm, I'm 24 years clean and sober now. You know, I only played for 22 years. You know, yeah. it's actually surpassed that. I only drunk for 12. I've lived more sober years than I, I was drunk. You know, I've, I've lived more sober years than football years. So it's, and it's life and death. You know, it, at the end of the day, football was football. It, and I still, at times, I'll grieve in it. You know, there's that explosion of physical, mental and emotional release that you get of winning a trophy, winning a match, scoring a goal is is hard to come through and to be okay with yourself that I'm never, ever going to experience that moment again. And I'm all right with that today. You know, a lot of players, that transition from from hero to, to nothing is huge for them. Yeah. You know, and... and there's other things out there that they try and fill the gap with. If they're not comfortable in their own thing, if they haven't got an emotional and mental support system in place, it's going to be a tough road. It's a tough road for anybody. You know, life out there is rough, you know, shit happens. You know, if you've got no kind of help along the journey, mate, it's a very, very lonely place. <laughs> I'm Yasmin Akram. Join myself and my friend Philippa Dunn each week for our podcast, We Heart Worry, a show about cars and their engines. Obviously not. It's a show where we talk about our fears, our worries and our anxieties in a bid to help you with yours. And we just have a laugh as well. So join us. There's nothing to be scared of. I promise. I've got twin boys who are nine now and they're boys and they've got everything, you know, they're loved. They come from a loving home apart from they've got a nutty dad, but they have a, you know, a loving, stable home. And yet I see a level of anxiety in them, which I don't necessarily see in other kids. You know, some kids seem to get up, go to school, 
play football, come home and do their homework. And it doesn't, you know, but with my kids, I can see there's a struggle. And you talk about a paralyzing anxiety that you had in your school school times. And, you know, and you see those alpha kids at the school gate. I still see them. They, they intimidate me, never mind the, the boys. But what do you feel about that, Tony? What is it that makes some kids be able to cope and other kids struggle? Yeah, um, firstly, I, I want to say, Jace, that it may be your projection onto them. They might be okay. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. Very similar to my kids. And, and, and i got five and a stepdaughter, so I've had a lot of practice yeah. <laughs> with uh, projecting my fears onto them and my angst of from a very early age being full of fear and frightened to death of death mm-hmm. really and that, i don't think that's normal but I, I can definitely see it in 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 some of my children uh now and i don't think i'm projecting my stuff but yeah most of the time they they get on with it you know and sometimes i i, I do fear for them that they they're, they're going to go down my route uh, which was a long and painful route, um, but then they've got their kind of own paths to lead. And uh, I think what I have done, me and my wife, we've actually stopped the cycle of addiction. You know, uh, in the family, we've 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 we're given them very different messages now. You know, we we've got a very you know we we sit around the, the the table and talk about our stuff now and and back in the day and to answer your question you know when i was growing up you know we weren't a family that sat around the table and talked about our feelings and you know i, I had a, a panic attack earlier you know early on in in school you know the, the book lesson the, the reading lesson when the yeah. book came round the class and I'm sitting there having a panic attack and you know i didn't know i was a panic attack in those days uh it was just i was just kind of scared you know and uh and because i'm in such a mess and when i it gets to my turn to to read i i, I make a complete mess of it and i and i said wheelie instead of really and everybody laughed and that that sensitivity around that you know he's i don't think that's normal you know so people what i did i shrugged it off and put the mask up and and put that mask up for a, for a lot of yeah i'm all right yeah i'm all right you know go, go yeah. away you know what i mean and and bury it you know and bury the stuff that i didn't have to do and i didn't take it like i said i didn't take it home to my parents and there was no oh what did you do at school today son did you have a panic attack oh what, what was you feeling so i i've got a very different relationships now with my children than I than I had with my parents and it didn't make them you know any they were good people you know yeah it's, not a, uh, it's just the way that they did their business you know because yeah. looking at your past and you know you've talked about it extensively but it wasn't an unloving home it's just that mm. when your kids which they Tony your kids and Atticus did presuming and my twins do and it's such a joy when they come back and say I'm really worried about this thing you know this kid at school and, and they talk to you about it and like you said, that maybe there's nothing you can do about it, but the fact that they're voicing it is just—it's just such a relief, isn't it? That's the secret. The, the secret is in, in in the talking therapy. You know that that saved my life. So yeah. you've got a chance to bring it into the consciousness. That thing which which I'm interested in as well was is that those little alpha boys. You know, you see them and they're like nine. My kids are nine, and they seem to be they just seem to deal with life you know better you know and, and I, it's i was just wondering whether it is genetic or whether whether that's just the way the cards are dealt you know mm. there's there's kids who just seem to deal better and it, you know your atticus i think is 
Is he coming up to 18 or is he just 18? Is he 16 and I've got a 14, I've got a 10 and then I've got a 28 and I've got a 25. Yeah, I've got a, a mixed bag and emotions, you know, I never grew up, you know, just in my experience, my emotionally, I'm talking, you know, I never yeah. grew up. I didn't have, have to go through it. But these kids seem, my kids certainly seem to do that. Well, you were never taught, Tony. You were never taught to. It's not like you know. If, if you're not taught to walk, you'll eventually stand up and walk. You know, even even if you've got no one in front of you to tell you. But it's not like that emotionally. I don't think. You know, you need nurturing and and looking after and and taught and you need to be taught how to deal with things. You know, yeah, I think. Some, do some kids do it better than others? I, I suppose they do. You know, but. Uh, in the right environment, I think that we can all. It's a bit of both, isn't it? It's a yeah. bit of na- nurture and, 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 and nature. You need the DNA. You talked about that, and the alpha male. You know, I, I was, I was bullied. You know, there was one. It's just kind of just came back in my mem- memory. Um, I went up, went to another school. A friend took me on a school trip, but with another school, and I didn't know anybody on on board. And I sat at the front of the coach, and one by one, everybody on the thing hit, come and hit me on the head. You know, and I was a year younger than these people. And you think of me, you know, I was very tall at that age, and I didn't have a problem in my own school. But you know, the, you talk about the all that stuff went inside. You know, I couldn't go home. I couldn't cry. You know, I didn't turn around and thump them, which was maybe what I should have done or whatever, you know what yeah. I mean? It was just all angst and, you know, and, I, and I've not kind of dealt with that until I was like 53. <laughs> You're actually great. You know, that experience is still with me today, the effect yeah. it had on me as a child. And then, you know, the bully becomes a bullier, you know, and there was periods where I, I did bully other kids and stuff, you know, uh, physically and, you know, emotionally and mentally. So you do, it's always unconscious at the time. But it's just the fact that now my kids and you brought, you brought Atticus up and, and just the way he he seems to do it naturally, whether that's he's been born that way or we've, we've educated him and given him positive messages and a space to where he could – deal with the the angst because we all grow up don't we and and i've i've not been shy you know i i do overshare with my kids and they kind of they run the other way now when i start talking because <laughs> sometimes they don't they don't want to hear because i i'm so open now you know? yeah 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 you know? and, and and i and i don't you know, I'd like to be like that rather than the, the – I suppose I've gone completely the other way to my own parents. <laughs> you know, they didn't share anything, you know, you know, any problems and stuff. I remember when Big Dave on his bike come round, he was dating my older sister and come to the front door out of his trolley and my dad wasn't having it, you know, and he went outside and had a punch-up with my – you know, but we were like, no one – it never happened, you know. Yeah. Kind of never happened. It was just cleared under the under the carpet. And what are you talking about? I dealt with that. Good job done. I mean, I listen to my mum Tony now, and and you know, you reflect back on your life, and you're giggling at being fifty three and 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 having just stuck, you know, having dealt with stuff, and now you're an open, you know, an open book. Mm. But mum's eighty three, and she's still go, and she's still, you know, she said to me the other the other day, she went, I remember being in the playground, and your aunt Audrey, she looked at, and she's talking about things that happened to her when she was ten, mm. but she's 
still trying to deal with them because she's never she never addressed that stuff she like you say she just she was the wee girl in the playground who cried and that was her and she just locked it all up and now she's sat up at night at 83 trying to work it out and not all 83 year olds it's too late but for her it seems like it is because she won't open those doors you know she's terrified of opening those doors and and letting it come out. So yeah, I'm Jace. I'm just really grateful that I've got a twelve step program. You know, yeah. I've got a way to live. Don't I? You know, yeah. going into therapy twenty four years ago, it's kind of you know it was the worst thing in the world that I could ever imagine. You know, my rock bottom was just horrific, and I don't want anybody to go there. But yeah. once I've gone through it and I've been able to get into a, a program of recovery, I've got a a twelve step program for life you know that deals with all this kind of stuff and to get all this stuff out and in step four we talk about uh, uh uncovering stuff discovering stuff and then discarding it you know we uncover all these we're able to go back into our past and clean it up in this process normal people don't have that 12-step program yeah. you know so i'm really grateful that that i can do that today and and it, what it's done for me it's kind of set me free I, I know all my character defects today in in six and seven i'm talking a little bit you know 12-step program here for you but it's kind of saved my life and like i say set me free. and i know i suppose i know me intimately now talking about um about drinking which was always your chosen drug really seeing as the wee your wee one is now just coming up to 17 and yeah. whilst injured you took your first drink at 17 didn't you and and he's just coming up to that age. And it, you say emotionally the house, your house is very open. I'm just asking this because it's, it's interesting for me. Yeah. Like in my house, when I grew up, mum and dad were both drinkers and all I had to do was reach out and there was, there was alcohol there. It was goodnight kisses, smell of whiskey. And that was around me. And I, I'm wondering how you feel about that and what do we do with our kids and what is the right, you know, like in France, you water down wine and you have it at 13 and you're drinking at you know at a very early age what what are your feelings about that tony about yeah. demonizing it or banning it or what i mean what are you what i'm do you lucky feel? i've got a partner that's um that's normal <laughs> you yeah. know she's very emotionally and mentally balanced and she educates them around drinking and whereby i've got my own set of experiences she allows them to to drink uh, and i always check whether they're doing it because they like the taste mm -hmm. or like I did the effect. So that's my uh, alarm bells for mm -hmm. me. I'm, I'm saying, why do you want this? You know, why do you drink, drink a Coke or something? Have, a, have an orange juice. <laughs> you know, why are you actually drinking this? You know, do you actually like the taste of it? And they kind of go, yeah, I quite, I quite like this. You know, we're not a anti-gam, you know, I'm not anti-drinking person. They definitely know where to go if they ever experience problems with it. And my better example is with with my older boy, to be honest with you, my 28-year-old, was when he, I've kind of lived through this process with him. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when he was about 24 and 25, he used to get, he used to party. He used to get on it and, uh, and have a good time. And, and, I, and I'm thinking, I give a lot of talks. And like you said, we went into Princeton and uh, I, I do a lot of talks a year and, uh, of that age group and below. And, and I had, an, had the kind of conversation with him. And I went and had a conversation with him. And I said, look, this is what I did. And I gave him a little bit more. He kind of knew a lot of it. But uh, um, I gave him a little bit of did this, did that, did that. And, you know, if you've experienced problems with it, blah, blah, blah. And he, and he turned around to me and he, he said, Dad, I've never missed a day's work. He said, um, I don't have blackouts. I don't wee myself. And he said, to be honest with you, you were in prison at my age. 
So quite frankly, Dad, <laughs> I'm doing okay. You know, I'm, I'm all right. You know? yeah, okay, I have a good time. He's not, you know, his mum's a, a recovering addict. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. But you Do you know, know what, Tony? It's interesting you say that because I, I think that cycle does. You know, that cycle continues. You know, great grandfather, father, mm. then to me of you know all alcoholics. But for me, I think I know it sounds like your older boy is the same. It put a devil on my shoulder, you know. So the next day when all the kids are going, oh, I feel terrible, let's have a Bloody Mary, that'll sort us out. I always went, nah, you suffer what you're suffering because that's the pain, that's the payoff, you know, that's the yin and the yang of it. And for me, dad and mum's alcohol um, consumption and, you know, my dad's demise and, mum, you know, and, and it ruined my mum's life, it kind of was, in a way, an amazing uh, warning for me rather than, I didn't go, well, this is normal, so I'm going to continue this cycle. It, it actually stopped me to a degree. Yeah, exactly so that. With my stepdaughter as well, who, who did see that me and her mother, yeah. the, the, the chaos that, that we, we caused, the yeah. volatile relationship, she saw it all. And then when she was about 14 and I made amends to her and said sorry and, uh, and everything that I'd done, I, I apologised. She And, and I, I, I reached out to her and I said, look, you know, you know, what do you think? She went. She said. She said, "You and Mum are nutted. I would never." <laughs> you know, she saw sorry, and it completely, like you, I think, kind of turned her off of it and turned yeah. away from it. And she's never, never actually abused any substance. That's great. That's yeah, great. it's just. Uh, but uh, I'm like I say, I, I, you know, I know where to take them if they did as well absolutely um showed the signs so we're very open and honest and i'm open and honest with all my kids and just for today they're looking like they're they're all okay and it, it's been quite easy to detach you know detach with love and just let them to grow and, and make yeah. their own mistakes you know my wife and i think women do maybe have a little bit more of an issue than us maternal instincts of the letting go but I very much have stepped back. I'm, I'm so self-obsessed anyway that, uh, you know, it's all about me anyway. No, that's <laughs> I'm not... the biggest child in the family anyway. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes. Great Big Owl.